Welcome to the latest self-service pub conversation, um, where I'm very happy to say I've invited Douglas White along, and he invited Justin Coombs, who I was very happy to hear as a choice, as I know Justin's work as well. Um, so that all turned out very nice. Um, anyone that hasn't been before, that's the format that the people in self-service choose an artist to come and have a chat, and they choose another artist that they want to chat with. So the idea is that lots of lovely new connections are made. Um, we ba- Basically, they'll talk for about an hour or so, and then we'll have a little break, probably a bit shorter than usual, because we're starting a bit late, and it's Matt's birthday. So we want to, you know, not, not go on too long. <laughs> I've, been, I've been told we've got to finish. You can go for a curry. Um, <laughs> that is it's 21 let's not, not get it on record <laughs> yeah for the podcast he's looking very young um, so yeah and then we'll do a few sort of questions and stuff after that and wrap it up um, just to say uh, self services run entirely voluntarily but we do get funding to pay for the technical kit and for the artists and thank you to the Arts Council Creative Alliance and UCE for that support Eh? BCU. Good grief. Right. <laughs> Get that on the podcast. So over to Justin and Douglas. Okay. Okay, thanks very much. Thanks, mate. And uh, first of all, yeah, big apologies for being a bit late. Sorry about that. And uh, thanks for having us. Um, Don't believe so. Justin and I, uh, Justin's a photographer, uh, I'm a sculptor. And we've known each other for about 10 years now. We met on BA and we were studying together and kind of have kept in sort of close personal and artistic contact since, I guess. So what we thought we'd do is just very quickly um, just run through some images just so you get a sense of, of what we do. Um, and then then we can talk about it. So we're going to start with Justin's work so he can, can talk you through that very quickly. Okay, right, start. Um, yeah, we're going to show you about um, 12 images each, and I should say uh, at the start, this is one of the few occasions I'm going to talk on behalf of both of us, but I think it's true that we both make a lot of work, and the actual stuff that, that sort of takes on a finished form which we exhibit or sell is, is quite a small proportion, isn't that right, yeah. Doug, of, of what we do? So. Um, just bear in mind this is part of a much wider kind of general um, activity, I suppose. Uh, so as Doug said, I mostly work uh, in photography, um, and I'm going to show you work from the last sort of six or seven years, really. This is the earliest piece, and it's actually from a very large ongoing series called Capital. Um, and unlike the rest of my work, which, as you'll see in a minute, involves a lot of... Um, uh, trickery and projections and various uh, artificial lighting and interventions from myself. The Capital series are just sort of straightforward, classical series of um, photojournalistic shots. So I, I also work um, commercially as a photographer, and often the Capital work is is the kind of stuff that you can get at the end of a shoot um, or when I'm just wandering around, things that take my eye. And as we'll see in the later shots, they also form a kind of catalogue or an encyclopedia of of, uh, um, images from real life, which I can then put into a more more orchestrated way of of working, which I I spend most of my time on. Um, So you can see in this shot the the sort of formal concern with things like uh, symmetry, and also the kind of ambiguity and irony of the, the woman looking on the one hand at this um, classical sculpture uh, and her gaze might be that of, hmm, you know, uh, the art connoisseur, but there's maybe an ambiguity that she's looking directly at his, his crotch and appreciating that. Um, so those kind of little small jokes and ironies kind of run through the run through the Capital series, and they're also very concerned with issues like power and and masculinity. Um, As well as Capital, um, and in fact, as I just said, 90% of my time is is taken up really with with producing a separate body of work, which uses slide projection. It's not terribly clear from this, so I'll I'll skip on and think to the next couple of slides, but um, 
what I basically do is take photographs during um, real time of, of real events. Uh, tree image coming up is the best example of this. And I then uh, project that image back onto its original source at the night time. So the, the first photograph, uh, the digital photograph, is taken um, uh, during the day with sort of strong, uh, strong daylight falling onto the subject. And I then go back to the same source at night and using uh, this projector, project that same image onto, onto its original source. So you have this kind of real-time layering. And um, I've got lots of reasons for doing it, but I suppose the main one is that um, I'm very interested in, in memory and perception and the way in which specifically uh, memory affects the way we, we perceive the world. So, for example, with this shot, um, it's uh, a very everyday scene. It's something which uh, I saw thousands of times when I was growing up. It's in my, it's in my dad's garden in Devon. Um, but I wanted to load it uh, with a kind of uh, otherworldliness uh, that could make the specialness of that scene uh, apparent to you, the, the viewer, for whom maybe it would, it would be rather uh, humdrum without the projection technique. Um, so in one form or another, that, that technique is what I've used really for the last five or six years as the, as the sort of mainstay of my practice. So I'm just going to uh, quickly flip back a few stages um, and highlight here. Uh, we can actually see Doug himself on the far left. He's the character um, un unwinding this um, uh, ghostly figure on a strip of wasteland, uh, which was near our first studio. That was a beautiful view from our, from our house yeah. and studio. Um, and we, we thought it would be good to include this image. Um, there's, a, there's a sort of parallel image of dogs um, to show later because we've both got this quite strong interest in junk and detritus, I suppose specifically urban detritus and, and the way in which that can um, become integrated with the, with the natural world. Um, but in these earlier works, I was really trying to write little short stories with photography. So this was part of a, a series of ten images which you read almost like a comic strip, and it was kind of a, a day in the life of this, this ghostly figure. Um, I did a similar thing with this, uh, uh, with this series of pictures, which was called Men in Choleric, um, and it was basically uh, a love story of a, of a woman, a young woman reading, reading a series of love letters and pinning them up around her, around her study. Uh, as the evening wore on, um, the letters became more and more illuminated. She became more and more drunk, um, and the, the intensity of this lost love became more and more uh, apparent. Um, so that's a lot of background. Um, I'm just going to skip through now the work I've made over the last year, which has formed um, the first solo show I did at uh, Paradise Row Gallery, where Doug also shows. Um, and... Uh, I should make it clear that the way I tend to present these things is never just as uh, straight photography, in inverted commas. Um, in the case of this show, viewers were invited to pick up a press release and a piece of text which I'd written as they entered the gallery space. And on the evening of the private view itself, I actually gave a, a reading, as did some other um, friends who are poets and writers. So the, the, the basic idea was that people would look at these images um, which are already quite kind of dense, loaded images, but see them with a with a certain uh, narrative that I that I put in their head to, to um, prejudice them and, and make them read it in a certain way, I suppose. Um, so there's the performative and writerly aspect of what I do. Um, there's also the fact here. This is this is part of my latest series, Urban Pastoral. Um, there's a concern with making photography something more than a print on the wall. So one obvious way to do this is to is to construct these light boxes, um, which I find are very appropriate for my work. They give it this quite kind of um, they give the light of an almost material presence, um, which which I really really like. Uh, and as well as the light boxes, the prints, and the writing and performance, I make very sh very short video pieces 
which in a way combine all of those different strands of the practice. And I'd say these are, of all the strands of what I do, these video pieces are really in their infancy. I've only made a few quite unsuccessfully. Um, this is a still from one. Uh, but I do think it's, it's potentially for fertile ground. Um, so the, this, this latest series was called Urban Pastoral. Uh, I grew up in, in Devon and I, I've lived the last uh, seven, eight years in London. So the, the broad concept was, um, I suppose, projecting images of the, of the countryside, or snatches of the countryside, into a city setting and sometimes vice versa. So you have this sense with this shot, which, as I said, was actually done down in Devon, uh, of maybe a, a shot, uh, a scene being on the, on the edge of a city or in a suburban uh, kind of no man's land. And um, you can tell if you, if you know this kind of work, it's very directly influenced by artists like uh, Gregory Crudson and, and Jeff Wall. Um, from, again, from the same batch of works that were done in, in the, uh, the Devonshire space, this is a, a back garden uh, with certain scenes from my childhood kind of reconstructed and, and reprojected back into that darkened space. This is called Indian Summer. This image is called Pavement Artist, uh, and I think it was a, a bit of a turning point for me. It's actually based on a photograph from the 50s by John Gutman called The Artist Lives Dangerously. It features a, a little boy drawing uh, a picture of a red Indian on the, on the road, on the street, um, and he appears to have to jump in and out of the cars um, in order to complete his drawing. So I took the logic of that picture and sort of concluded it, that the boy was actually killed by a car, um, but he kept revisiting the same spots and obsessively drawing on this area. And um, I was keen around this time to stop using the projection technique. I felt I was um, using it as a bit too much of a trick. Um, and so this was a marking point that it, I was excited that this photograph had the kind of the density of the projection works, whilst actually just being more of a more of a straight photograph. So a lot of these more recent pictures don't actually feature the projection at all. Um, but as I, as I was putting it to Doug when we were driving up here, the projection in a sense has almost become the memory which I'm reconstructing in a lot of these shots. Um, in this case, I don't know whether you can make it out, but there's a there's a fox which is. Um, uh, rummaging through the rubbish of this street scene here um, and this as, as all these other shots is a reconstruction of a, uh, of a glancing memory I had from my childhood reconstruction picture this is called um, One for Sorrow and it's a, a memory I have of my, of my mother uh, gardening which I in this case reconstructed on a uh, council estate um, allotment in South London. And you can see there's a, a sort of creeping use of these little um, animals and creatures, certain symbolic markers that I'm interested in using more and more as I use the projection less and less. So on the, on the left there, there's actually a scarecrow and a little, um, I can't see it terribly a little magpie resting on his shoulder. That's better. Can, it, can everyone see that? More or less. The colours are dreadful, by the way. Most, most of these images are actually really sort of quite colour saturated and looking at quite bright, intense colours. Uh, this, Im this image is called uh, Witness. The fox makes another appearance, this time glancing out from behind, um, uh, behind that sheet of green uh, gauze on, on another allotment. This image is called the Warden. Um, just just to the right of the little greenhouse there, there's a there's a sort of ghostly figure, um, which is a reconstruction of my my grandfather. Um, memory I have of my grandfather gardening, and you, again you can't make it out due to the poor quality of the projection here. But in the in the background you can actually see the um, the gherkin and. Uh, certain features of the city of London so this sense of the city being at the edge of the activity 
is um, is quite quite key to a lot of these images. This is called the Aristocrats in brackets for Brian Jones, um, a character in in white, uh, sort of spaced out from this park bench at the front of the scene is, is Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones who died in mysterious circumstances um, this picture is called The Collector in brackets for Douglas White and it's a little tribute picture to Doug um, in some ways I see it as being a portrait of uh, Doug's practice as an artist Doug is the Magpie sitting sitting on top of the wheelbarrow, and all of the detritus and um, rubbish underneath him is the uh, other materials that he collects um, in order in order to make his work. And these most recent works also mark, I suppose, a much more pronounced interest for me in uh, the the aesthetic and the sublime and in a certain pictorial conventions which have been around for um, several centuries at least and finally from my from my series um, this image is called a place for everything and once again it's not terribly clear from um, from the projection but most of the images we've been looking at are kind of um, quite large about a metre and a half by a metre deep and they're big lambda prints so they have a real kind of presence when you look at them in the gallery space I want them to look a little bit like um, landscape paintings I suppose and um, because I've been working on large format they're very very detailed so um, in the case of this picture at the sort of midpoint of the tree where the branches begin there it's not terribly clear but there's actually a, um, a raven sitting on, the, sitting on the branch and he's kind of staring directly at us I also like the suggestion that the street lamps in the in the middle distance there are like two two eyes, so it's almost like this is an image looking back at you. Um, and just to return on a final note to this uh, this idea of memory and the the importance of memory it has in my work. Um, this, like every pretty much every shot I've shown you tonight, is a conflation of the of the real of a real scene which I observed and certain things which I remember and I've reconstructed so in this case I've actually um, rearranged certain areas of the allotment in order for the whole thing to as it were fit into place with, uh, with a mental picture I had of what, of what I wanted to make um, so that's where, where I'm at at the moment and so I think I should hand over to Doug yeah yeah <laughs> hit the next one do you want me to, do you want me to operate it or yeah yeah it's fine okay um, well, I'll, I'll just run through these very quickly. Um, yeah, I work with found materials in general, and often it's kind of a combination of materials, or sometimes it's just the object straight off. Um, this it's quite an old image. Justin wanted to put in. It's about five, five or six years old, probably called Boy Blue. From the next one, this is a uh, piece of pine tree that was struck by lightning and kind of torn open. And I just cut off the base of it and it had this sort of a picturesque I suppose or, or dramatic or romantic sort of landscape feel to it um, it's called Grass Will Grow Over Your Cities which is a title I stole from Anselm Kiefer but he stole it from the Bible so I felt okay <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> this, is, uh, this is a piece called Fibrosis this is a straight, this is a straight found object and quite indicative of, of one aspect of my practice so I suppose is to somehow find objects that kind of haunt me and just won't leave me alone until I go and get and this was actually came from New Zealand and I saw it my dad emigrated there and I saw it three years prior to actually collecting it and I never the, the image of it never actually just left my head so I eventually next time I went back went out into the woods and found it again and hauled it out and exported it um, and it's, it's the stump of a tree fern there's a, there's a detail shot next had this very kind of bodily otherworldly kind of costume feel to it it was just something about it that, that kind of that wouldn't leave me I suppose and, until I went to get it um, 
Sorry, um, it's kind of about torso size, so it kind of yeah stands about about yay big, which isn't much good for the podcast, I guess. That's um, about three or three or four foot, three or four foot tall. Um, that's that's actually a piece of another tree that was um, pulled out of the side of Fabrosa and then became combined with a particularly purple-looking basketball today. But that's actually quite bright orange. Again, just kind of combination of materials to to some sort of totemic effect, I suppose, is the idea. Um, uh, this this is another, this is a straight. This is actually a found object, which the next shot will show sort of in a gallery space. But to go back, I thought it was quite interesting in terms of Justin's work because when I was digging through my files, it struck me to have quite strong resonances of some of his images it's, it's a pair of recycling bins that were torched by vandals in fact in the foreground where all that paper is that's where there was a paper recycling bin which they set fire to so that just burnt to the ground and took the front of the two bottle recycling banks with it um, so they have these kind of aggressive aggressive kind of broken bottles sticking out of them they're kind of wielding them like like out, but equally, I, I kind of enjoy its its sort of conversation with formal sculpture with kind of um, Henry Moore and Lynn Chadwick's King and Queen, or these sort of very grand kind of bronze sculptures, and, and kind of undermining that to a certain extent, or referencing it, or whatever. But just just simply by by changing the situation of the object, I suppose, kind of. But. If I'm being honest, those aren't the concerns. When I see it, I just saw them and thought, I've got to, got to have those. Yeah, and, and it's as simple as that. However, sort of high-minded you try to make it after the event, um, it was just a case of sitting around waiting for the council to come to try and throw them away, and then getting them to the studio. It, do, it does almost look um, too good to be true. In the bottom left there, it's as if the um, Bin on the right is holding uh, a bottle down by its side, yeah. as if it's just taken a big swig. Yeah. You didn't add. You didn't add. I anything. didn't. I didn't add any of it. No. Um, yeah, yeah. Hit, hit it. Um, well, not in not in this case, I suppose. It's 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 that thing. The work is somehow easiest when it's when it's found in the right state which the last piece and this piece where it's kind of you find them and you, and I was talking to Justin about this um, on the way up actually it's you know, how, do, how do you define a successful piece of work or how do you know when you've got something really good and for me with a piece like this or or the last the, the fibrosa piece it's just it's almost it's almost sickeningly good. I can't sleep because I just need to get hold of them before and I start coveting these things. So they're just so clearly junk. You know, there'll be a rotten piece of wood, and I'll, and I'll be saying, someone, but, "But someone's going to take it if I don't take it." And they're like, "No one else wants that." But so, so in that case, I wouldn't I wouldn't feel the need to to change it because as soon as you start to change it, the decision making is so much more difficult, and there's so many questions and. And so, thankfully, it was it was right in its in its current state. Um, whereas a piece a piece like this or the next one um, is a case of found finding a material and really loving its certain qualities about it. And that was these 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 are made out of blown out tire fragments, which I picked up on from the roadsides in Central America when I was out doing residency there a few years ago. Um, and it's material that I've returned to in, in various states. They have this amazing kind of torn up, feathered quality. And so I went out on this residency to work to work with wood because that's what I've been doing. And just, roads are just littered with this stuff. And it looks like roadkill, just torn up, natural animal material. Um, and so I collected it and hoarded it, but felt that it did need to go somewhere else. Or it did need some other form. So I've worked with it in these kind of tree forms, as well as doing sort of assemblages with other materials and sort of slightly more totemic matter. Um, next one. Um, and this is. I won't talk too much about this. This is um, the moon piece, which if you hit the button again, John. 
it's almost like a found object in that it was it's, it's a found process, I suppose. This is actually made from a thin layer of candle wax, which melted with boiling water, and it f- formed this translucent layer. Um, but it was literally sort of accidental. I was trying to make these sculptures out of wax that were failing, and I poured away some boiling water into a bucket and came back and there was this crust and, and that was what was left so as well as kind of found objects it's sort of found processes and and I suppose that's the battle in the studio is constantly just moving things around and pushing materials around until something interesting happens and I think the final piece this is a straight found object and probably the one that's closest to my heart um, it's a patio door um, retrieved from an elderly couple in Leicester that an owl had flown into and owls have a very fine layer of dust and grease on their feathers so it left a perfect imprint of itself um, on the door and to cut a a long story short I just collected it and put it in the gallery but that long story was about 18 months of how did you get an owl? Okay, a slightly longer story there. Um, I saw a picture of it in Metro, uh, in one of their, in, you know, their uh, Metro, I guess. Did you get something like Metro here? It's a, sorry. Oh, you saw it too? Yeah, a few people did. A few people had cut it out and kind of, that I spoke to. But no, I was, yeah, basically, like I said before, I couldn't sleep that night after I'd seen that. And I was convinced that various, everyone would be calling up these owners and like museums would be after it. And I was like, I've got to get in touch with them. So I called every Ray Pierce in Leicester because that was, that was the name on the caption. And of the four of them, I got hold of three of them and they weren't the people. So I convinced myself that the fourth Ray Pierce wasn't answering the phone because everyone was calling him. In fact, he'd been at a funeral. Um, and the owl <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I believe the owl survived. Um, there was no sign of it in the morning. And it was, it was a long process to get him to let me remove his patio door. Um, but I did it. With, with the help of the Lord, he was a, good, he was a God-fearing man. And, and I made a donation to the Gideons on his behalf and his local church. And uh, that was enough to seal the deal. And then it was a question of trying to work out if this thing was going to survive the trip to London. It's in daylight; it's virtually invisible, um, but lit right. Uh, if, if you just hit the next, because it became this. I mean, that's that's the detail, and the de- what you don't get there is the detail of it. You can see the individual hairs on the individual feathers, like it's sort of individual eyelashes and everything. It's amazingly detailed and beautiful. How, how are you preserving? It's um, it's encased behind glass and, and just as long as that it's kept at the right temperature, I'm informed by my various sources, including CSI, the company, um, <laughs> that it's, it will survive indefinitely. So, but it's yeah. amazing the guy didn't just clean it off two days later. That was that was what the caption said in Metro. It said this happened to you know probably something like what an owler or something or some sort of pun, and then you know him quoted as saying I guess we'll wait till the window cleaners come right. and and they hadn't been able to get in yeah they hadn't been able to get in because he'd been at the funeral so <laughs> there we go and yeah so that, that's it for the images but that, that gives a sense of, of what Justin and I do and what I thought would be interesting about inviting Justin in for a conversation was I, there is a lot of common ground in our work but equally, I mean, you were saying you just don't think about sculpture, really. And I don't really think about, you know, you see a lot of sculpture, I see a lot of photography. But we really don't have much idea of, of each other's processes on an intimate level. No. So, sure. similar yet different. Yes. <laughs> and it's been um, uh, re- fascinating, actually, just uh, realising how much we've got in common, I think, through the, through the conversation um, we've we've had uh, one of the parallels I drew um, was I suppose with uh, well the, the most obvious thing was uh, an image if I flip back a few stages here um, of <clears throat> that interesting collecting urban detritus and 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 um, 
transforming it into something maybe more than the sum of its parts. And I suppose um, it just it just occurred to me actually while you were talking that uh, another another parallel with what we're doing is that um, I think maybe with the with some of your most successful pieces is an incredibly light touch you know you're using <coughs> excuse me you're using the tr- the tradition of the the ready made and you're often subverting that very subtly by certain extra additions and so on but often you're there's really no additional intervention at all you're literally just plucking something out of the world and in a way photography is all about that you know it's just a form of pointing and saying you know here's something worth looking at and so I'm constantly aware of a tension with my stuff where I might spend weeks and weeks preparing something very elaborate and staged and spend a lot of money trying to make something come together and uh, and be meaningful um, and there's always the you know you, there's always the chance that with no money at all and with a with an almost accidental click of a of a shutter you'll get something as powerful so I wonder if that that kind of tension is is as important to you as it is for me. And do you recognise? Yeah, what you're talking about? I do recognise what you're talking about, and I think I think it's a, you know it's a common story with kind of the, the best works of artists. And I think that's kind of how I keep my practice going. I think yeah, as I was saying to you, sometimes it's the, I wish I could find enough found objects to sort of fill my practice with just collecting these amazing things, but. It's almost like the studio work and using material and playing around with materials and other works. It's kind of training your eye to see certain things and then vice versa. The things you just happen to find but are drawn to very much inform the way you use the material. And I think that all the labour, I think it is, a, it can be a simple case of, like you say, of, you know, you put all this effort into doing a, a, an elaborate shoot and then right at the end you find exactly what you're looking for somewhere else or very simply but I don't think you can underestimate the value and the importance of all the labour because that gets you into a emotional and a visual space to be able to to just extract what you really need the kind of essential the yes. essential from the situation I suppose yeah there's yeah. I forget who said it I think it was a photographer that um, somebody charged him with being it's probably Cartier-Bresson or someone like that and someone told him he was lucky with what he'd found and he, he said it's funny the harder I work the luckier I get <laughs> um, so yeah there's this sense what was one of the things I find addictive about art making that the, the more prepared you are the more likely that, that good things good accidents come your way yeah, absolutely. And like you say, yeah, I mean, which is just, like you say about the the volume of work, the volume of stuff that I've sort of collected or made or discarded, and then kind of that continual process is kind of a big, almost like a hanger full of it. Yeah. Actually, I've just all these kind of <laughs> discarded pieces, and yet you kind of hold on to them thinking that someday you're going to get something out of them you know they might all burn down but then at the bottom there'll be like a charred mess that's just perfect actually where we should have included in the in the show actually um an example of one of your mop prints because they've they have become like a signature piece really haven't they you basically take a dirty mop yes <laughs> and plant it down on a big piece of uh, water is it watercolor blotting paper, paper, blotting yeah. paper. Um, and they, uh, the resulting image looks almost uh, it looks like any number of things from the natural world. It maybe looks like an egg being fer- fertilised, bacterial kind of yeah, but quite bacteria in a petri dish. Um, yeah, I suppose they have. I mean, they have become something of a signature. Not least because part of the challenge as a sculptor sometimes is to be able to make something two dimensional that you can actually sell to support your practice <laughs> you do put a lot of effort however well you know it did not that I don't believe in the work because I do I like those pieces but in another world I might have made one or two of them but instead they have become a kind of yeah. an ongoing series and on, on that same note Doug um, we, we were talking earlier about how 
uh, th- this is the first of the uh, palm pieces that you made, obviously in situ there, in in a rainforest in Belize. Um, you've since made um, a number of them, and some of them, one's in the um, Cass Sculpture Park, another is a smaller version is in um, a, a collector's back garden in West yeah. London. And um, how do you feel about the that quite extreme difference in context. Um, do you do you feel that it may, it weakens the work when you see when you see it in a in a you know in front of a nice privet hedge and a? I th- I'm I'm all right with it actually. Yeah. It's it was particularly with this work, and again, I mean it's it's how much you sort of think about a work after the event to some extent. But this this piece, the one in that I made in Belize. I was out. I was out in Belize for for four weeks for this beautiful residency in in the middle of the rainforest, and it was it was kind of like a week to just settle in, and then a week to have the idea, so a week to collect the material and a week to make it, which for a large sculpture was a real challenge. So it was really knocked together. I mean, this from that angle, it looks quite good, but um, it was it was very knocked together, and I felt it was the beginning of an idea. Um, so subsequently when it came to going back to collect the material and to ship it over it kind of entered a new dialogue I suppose and the fact that it was rubber and it was coming from South America it kind of had it had these sort of colonial overtones but a sort of demented colonialism where instead of going out to kind of raid the natural resources I went out and spent two weeks in a pickup cleaning the roads of of this country and and then bringing it back and I don't, just the journey and the and the sort of intricacies of the story I think I think it added a new history to the sculpture and it and so that change of context because it's almost the most natural thing in the world for it to to come over even though it's absolutely ridiculous to sort of travel across the world to get this material and then sort of install it and in a sort of formal gardens of some description. But with that with that piece it seems Sorry, yeah, is it the same tree that was in initial access or is it like um, it's not uh, yeah it, actually the one in initial access is is the next one on that's the one in initial access. But the one in Belize remains there. It's kind of permanently sited. Um, so that, that piece was first shown in in Paradise Row in London and, and it's now now at initial access, yeah. Uh, so does does that one at initial access? There's the one at the Cass Sculpture Foundation and two others. So they're spreading. So are you, are you like like sprinkling <laughs> nails in roads <laughs> of developing countries? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't possibly say. No, I don't. I don't have to. I mean, Belize is, just seems to be this constantly renewing source of them it's on the one trade route sort of through Central America and I don't know they don't clean their roads and I actually just went on another material gathering trip just before Christmas for a, for a new series of work so there's a big container somewhere between Rotterdam and here right now full of, full of this stuff yeah. I thought I, I thought both of your stuff was really beautiful but I, I wanted to ask you about what you said about this is aesthetic that's two, several centuries old and sort of like near the end and sort of like what you're interested in. Maybe you could say something more about it. Um, yes, I suppose I just meant um, more, most obviously on the, the image uh, we were looking at at that stage. It's, it's called The Collector for Douglas White. And with that big bolt of... Um, it's actually morning, it's, it's sunrise, you can see on the, on the right there, um, coming over the brow of the hill. Uh, that sense of um, light flooding a scene um, will have echoes for a lot of people who are interested in, in landscape painting of the, the sublime and, and German romantic landscape painting. Um, but as well as that, I, I suppose I was just talking on a more general level about you know, interest in, in, I suppose, things which all, it almost feels, I, I feel quite uncool or um, crusty talking about it, but an interest in, in um, formal concerns, just generally pic- picture making. Um, 
So things like symmetry, things like the rule of thirds, um, you're really not getting it from these from these projections. But the, the quality of the of the colours and the way those certain colours interact together um, are, are just really really important with what I do. Yeah, the colour's much better on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the colour looks all right here actually. Yeah, uh, it's more around Justin Justin's thing. I think about that purple thing with it's some weird colour on there. Yeah, yeah. No, it's quite. It's quite but those are quite, they're, they're quite mystical, you know. If people would like to look at the end, maybe you could just you feel free to scroll through the laptop and see them in living colour, in real technicolour. Um, I don't want to uh, stretch your patience anymore by by fiddling with the colours on the projector now. Mm-hmm. Something that I was going to ask you about yesterday, which I mentioned, was um, the idea of adolescence in your work and I wanted to bring it up without and it's funny because bringing it up that sounds like derogatory in some way yeah but um, particularly with with the image of, of the girl sort of surrounded yeah by these things by all her stuff in her in her room it's kind of it has the feeling of of a kind of teenage bedroom yeah and I mean that in the nicest possible way in the yes there's something about your work which is kind of creating this immersive environment and it has and it just has really strong echoes of adolescence for me yeah in you know that first stage where you're, you're, you become sort of aware of and at odds with the world and so you collect and surround yourself with all these things yeah which is on the one hand a very common artistic trait but I think on a wider basis is is extremely common in adolescence and it's something I feel quite close to in my work indeed the adolescent in general I think is a underrepresented world <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's, yeah, it's certainly something or it's modified yeah you know it's kind of it's kind of sold back or it's fashions when you're doing art with young people yeah but I think the sort of degree of modification can be can be too great or something or it's, or it's, or it's definitely dis- it's, it seems to be discouraged I mean I have a very I have a very strong memory one of my strongest artistic memories is probably around my GCSE time or around 15 and sort of discovering Egon Schiele and finding this book and being blown away by it and, and taking it to this art teacher and um saying this is amazing and, he's, and he basically said don't worry you'll grow out of it <laughs> kind of you know this angst you know because uh, and I think of him as like the quintessentially adolescent artist and he's sort of really at odds with his body and this sort of strong and uncomfortable sexuality and, and all of these things I, I'm glad to say I didn't grow out of it and he was entirely wrong and I think it's yeah. a really powerful it's minimising isn't it it's minimising you at that moment as yeah. well you know yeah, I, I, mean, I, had, I had a Goya summer yeah. <laughs> I bunked off school because there was just loads of Goya exhibitions right. on in London and, and that was it I mean I was just committed to bunking off school and staring at Los Desperados for, yeah. for like days and forging notes and you know and stuff and it was absolutely it, it, you know it, integral to the things I care about you know just being kind of so completely subsumed yeah. being in Chingford that was nobody I could talk to about it <laughs> and it's quite you know you probably can't ever be involved in a subject like that again I don't think in your life I would not, not, argue, not, with, not with as fresh eyes I don't think yeah, but, but there's other I mean there's other visits I think yeah. you make or kind of you know, I think, but even at that age, you're as old as you think you're ever going to be. Yeah. You, you still think you're really sophisticated mm-hmm. at 15, and that you know everything because you've kind of got all these hormones. Yeah. So I, I think there is renewal. It's just it's just with a different ellipse, if you like. You know, that's but only one key. Also, also, what's um, um, what I remember being incredibly exciting about like, being um, 13, 14, 15 was that I mean, this literally is it really. It, Sorry, um, a, re- a reconstruction. I'll just let that ring. It will finish by the time we get over there. Um, this is a reconstruction of what my bedroom looked like when I was that age, and in fact, it's what my studio continued to look like up until a few, a few years ago. Um, but for me, what, what I remember being really, really exciting about being 14 is that you have these 
millions of potential identities that you've suddenly become aware of around you and they're all kind of hovering um, and nobody least of all yourself is going to pin you to any one of them I mean maybe you know adolescents do get a bad bad press and they get kind of um, misrepresented um, but I think it's, a, it's a, an incredible age and I suppose in some ways and this is not an, at all an original thing to say but I do want to preserve the my, my inner adolescent I want my artistic self to have all this endless potential um, which will be generative and, and can um, keep propelling me forward however mature I become as a, as a person in my, in my personal life um, so I'm really glad you, you sort of noticed it and I wasn't at all offended by it and in fact um, <laughs> This is going to look like I'm trying to get back at you. <laughs> I did notice something similar going on with your work because um, Doug and I actually have, we we have a studios literally just around the corner from from one another. We're in the same block, um, and Doug's just across the just across the way from me. So we probably see each other a few times a day when when we're in the studio. And um, I, I absolutely love going into his space because it's about the size of this room that we're sitting in now. And you'll go in there, and if you can imagine this kind of stuff times ten, <laughs> it's just, you know, it's a kind of steptoe and son gone mad. And it's, it's such an, for me, it's an exciting place to go in and check the progress of because it's forever fluctuating and shifting and it's almost something that you can go into and, and see potential works yourself um, coming out of so I was just, that brings me I suppose around to the final question I wanted to ask you which is how important do you see the, the studio and um, how important is the creative process itself in relation to the, the finished work because you know as you said we're, we're contemporaries um, I think you're about six months younger than me but we've sort of gone through art college at the same time we've been taken on by the same gallery and we've both started selling work um, at a more, more or less the same time sort of about three years ago as I think when we started selling works in serious quantities um, so I was just wondering how you sort of felt about that really and it, and it brings me on to a broader question as well about it, for me it's always very confusing and disconcerting to give an account of what I do as an artist because it feels like a kind of a constant for me in the studio and in my head and living with these things as they evolve and then every now and again you're asked to give a talk or give a statement about your work or put together a show and, and it's it, it kind of pulls you up a bit. You're like, oh, okay. Well, whatever people are going to see, it's not really what's been what's yeah. been going on. So, do, does that make sense? What I'm yeah, absolutely. And I suppose there was quite a few questions in there. Yeah, but, sorry. Uh, in, terms the, in terms of the studio practice and and showing, I suppose at the beginning and the end of your questions, I guess every artist has problems with editing and what to show and what not to show and, and those kind of things. For me it is sometimes it, it has always been a particular challenge because the studio is sort of my natural environment and collecting these things and, and the, the process the process does feel like the artistic endeavour. You know, the the works are obviously an upshot of that and exhibiting them also is I don't know, sometimes it seems like a, sometimes I feel like it's a necessary evil or something or it's kind of something you have to do whereas you know, I'd like to just tinker around all my time but it, it, you know, obviously it's a very positive thing to do because it makes you make decisions and question things and push things to a finished state and you know, if, if that's important but, but the studio process is definitely what I feel closest to as an artist but that's got to be true of all artists really um, so do you feel more liberated when you're out? If you're working away, like you worked in Paris, yeah. was that frightening? Because you weren't in the comfortable surroundings and you didn't know where that two and a half inch nail was? Or Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't... I don't find a studio particularly comfortable. That's one thing. I'm always... It is... Oh, there's always new stuff coming in and pushing out. And there are always sort of... I'm always sort of asking questions in there. It's just not how much stuff do I have to put in this white space to make it look right it's kind of like that it's not about what looks right it's about 
feels right. Sure. That's that's so that's, you know, but showing isn't. You know, I, I kind of understand what you mean, but yeah. I think that showing the, those making the decisions, but as someone who would naturally just have some kind of sculpture Tourette's and continue to make things forevermore in whatever size space you give me, quite happily, showing forces me to do something that. I kind of don't. I don't do that. I kind of almost don't do naturally. That it makes me go, okay, this one is better than yeah, that exactly. one in a, in a way that become that becomes incredibly public. Yeah, and it's really Which important, really, and it's, and it's really. really yeah. But that's a really good discipline in a way because you could just everything is interest. You know, all these things are really yeah. interesting, but actually going and how do I quantify why? Yeah, absolutely. It, is, it was a it was a silly thing to say. Really, and it's, and no one no one likes no one likes, no, no one likes making no, no one likes making the decisions. But I know why you said yeah. it because I think because they're all really your friends and you don't want to yeah. you don't want to offend any of them. But but no, but to be but also leaving it is amazingly liberating because. You know, as as a sort of hoarder, one of the most refreshing things would be just to not have the kind of weight of material around you, and not have to constantly look at the things and think, well, "Do I get rid of that or don't I?" And you find you've just been looking at a piece of junk for half an hour, thinking about it for no particular reason. So when you when you go into a new environment, it's just a whole new world to sort of explore and navigate and. and Sort of I was, sorry, to sorry. I was thinking of some sort of question around that issue of how you're actually collecting stuff. Where it seems to be in sort of modern, modern, I don't know, current climate that you basically you can get your record collection on your your laptop. You you uh, um, you can read books online. You can, you know, everything's kind of you know condensed yeah, down, more, yeah. and actually you, you're, you've got more than an attic and a studio full of stuff, you know, which you, you're collecting, like uh, you know, you, you're on the, the coast or something, you're collecting like floats and stuff. Yeah. And, and um, I wonder how sort of practically um, you reconcile that with um, with perhaps um, you know conceptually how. How that, how that affects in, in the current climate of technology and stuff. I mean, if, if you, uh, I mean, you could, for, for instance, like photograph everything you find and then and not have to collect it, but it's that need to to, yeah, it to is, own, it is, yeah. own stuff, you know, which is important for you. I, I yeah, absolutely. I mean, with with the sort of bins, for example, I did. I went out and I sort of spent an evening trying to photograph them and trying to get this kind of immersive photograph that really take you but it just never for me had the power of the object and so yeah I can totally understand yeah. that because and seeing those off those bins are just yeah. fantastic you know I mean as objects and they and yeah, I can that I, I'm just quite intrigued to what you know that, that impulse to actually have that and, yeah. you know I mean, but what made you go back to New Zealand to get that tree trunk and you know because yeah, it's just kind of it's like an itch, I suppose. But then equally, just being in the, there equally are sort of a volume of photographs, oh, digital file, you know, you just collect those two, but then they never really, you never put as much effort into them, so they don't. I'm, I'm also come out. interested in, in, in the way you protect that space, you know, you were talking about that kind of um, prepubescent or pubescent space of just being. And actually, you know, you're in London, you're selling work, you're doing all the kind of stuff for the CV, and, 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 and to get Tesco's instead of Lidl, you know, all of those kind of juggles. But actually, you both seem to be able to protect the space of making the instinctive work, which actually then becomes the things that get you to Lidl and so on. And I, I'm really interested in, in that constant kind of shape-shifting between actually really protecting the space of making which is ultimately and rightfully selfish that then translates into a story for other people you know so that you get back on that plane and you know all the way through the journey I can just see this story of you just thinking about the piece and has somebody taken it you know is anybody noticed that I've taken it you know I can just hear the kind of you know the dialogue there and and I think that's really um it's really refreshing and wonderful to hear because I think everybody is in that struggle of protecting that space. Yeah, yeah. And, and all of the kind of 360-degree attack one does on oneself as well as everybody else does on you about are you being indulgent, are you this, are you that, you know, but actually really protecting that. It's a very sacred space. Yeah. 
you know, in, in order to make, you know, in order to defy all those kind of collecting. I mean, I love tap. You know, the more space I get, the more I fill it. <coughs> so. It, you know, so you're naturally working against the zeitgeist of that rather than politically working against mm. it. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah, I mean, it's never, been a, it's, never been a, it's never been a sort of conscious effort, I suppose. It was, it, it was when I, for me, it was when I sort of left art making, sort of after my BA, and I never wanted to make a piece of art again. It was that decision, I suppose, that for me worked, you know, slowly got interesting again. I just went and lived back sort of where I'd grown up, which was pretty rural, and just sort of dragging bits of wood in, actually, and just thought that they might end up in a craft fair as much as anything else. And I sort of left the, any kind of artistic ego behind, not even unconsciously, just because I was just pretty sick of... I don't know the, the sort of regard in which art held itself a lot of the time. I just didn't. I didn't have enough. I didn't have enough faith in it. I suppose. I just. You know. I wasn't making work in the right way. To be honest, there was no problem with the art world at large. It was, it was my problem. But so that's where it started. Yeah. And so it was actually. Actually, I'm thinking about it like that. It was actually going back to my own adolescent space, quite literally, and just kind of doing that. But then, for I mean, I, that's what I was asking Justin on the way up. I was kind of saying, well, you know, for me, I worked through all these objects and the collecting and sifting. But I guess you do it in your head. But but Justin, you were saying that in fact, it's just you just have a wealth of digital files and thousands and thousands of images and just just navigate it differently. I yeah, which I'm just sort of constantly combing over. Yeah, but, but to go back to your your point about pre- preserving that space in a way. Um, well, protecting it because pre- preservation. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, sorry no. Uh, no. Semantic, put words I just. In your mouth, I just. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah pre- protecting that space. <coughs> Whilst I agree, as you know, that's very important. At the same time, I think it's interesting to sort of track the development of what we've done because um, maybe the, the the original adolescent space is um, one of maybe purely the imagination. I mean, I, I'd had a small bedroom when I was growing up, and that was that was the space I had in which to make my work. So it, was, it naturally, physically took that shape. Um, as I as I track my development over the last few years, as I've had a, stu- um, a studio, and then I didn't have a studio for a few years, and then I've had a studio again, and, and now I'm expanding my studio because, because I'm able to... Um, uh, it's just interesting that, of, of course, on the one hand, you're pre- protecting um, that that internal space, that space of the imagination, but on the other, there's a sort of slow ratchet effect where you have to be an opportunist to some degree. You, you have to take advantage of what's made available to you, and I see it with your work as well, Doug, that you, in each physical space that you've worked in, the logic has just been... You know, making something as big as you possibly can, or not necessarily as big, but as overflowing the space that you're you're working in. So I remember when we shared a studio in Dalston a few years years ago. You know, it was it was a tiny corner that you had, and um, not necessarily the pieces themselves, but the but the um, uh, the detritus that you collected in that space was always overflowing. And now, with ten times as much space. Uh, the yes. same thing is on the verge of going to stop. <laughs> but I'm interested in the tritus as well because you know, loving cities as I do, um, that they're going. I mean, the spaces where you can actually gather and get. Yeah, there'll always be vandals it, to do your work. Yeah, for. yeah, I know. <laughs> and I, I, I know that that means that, that, that in a sense you're, you're more challenged. But I, I am interested in how the tritus changing. Mm. Yeah, it is. You know, you've got just different kinds of. But it's rather than detritus, we could talk about uh, space and you know, um, common space because I, I mean, I've just noticed in the last five years in London that five years ago, you know, you could walk just around Hackney onto all kinds of bits of waste ground uh, that obviously belong to people, but they didn't care, and you could go in and do what you want, and that's just less and less the case. You know, pretty much everything now is uh, got electronic protection on it, and photos of guard dogs and everything. CCTV, yeah, it's, it's depressing. Would everybody like a break at this point? Yeah. I'm just aware that you've been talking for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> it's been brilliant. It's been great. Yeah, well, it's been-
Um, well, quickly, while I remember it, I'd like to say uh, thanks to Matt for sorting us out with this projector, because were it not for him, um, we wouldn't have actually seen Shut the images up. at all. Have <laughs> yeah, a very happy birthday. We should all um, sing happy birthday. Happy birthday to Yeah.